We come to the next section, the fourth section. In this division, there are three different asides, visions, that are placed between the trumpets and the bowls. Each of the asides recapitulates the events of revelation between the first and coming of Christ. These asides have an almost mythological feel with dragons and winged women and beasts, and they are meant to be understood with imagination rather than analytical precision. These chapters are the weirdest in Revelation. They're going to be right up there. Read Zechariah and his visions. They're like that. They're weird. They're strange. It almost feels like the Chronicles of Narnia than it does in anything literal or real life. And it takes you back to Daniel 7 with these kind of things. In chapters 12 through 14, we're going to get three different asides, 12, 13, and 14. And what's different now is where normally we have seen an aside between the sixth and the seventh seal, and then an aside between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now we're getting three asides between the trumpets and the bowls. So now we're going to interrupt it again. God's just like, pause, pause, pause. Okay? So it's, it's, it sometimes can be hard to keep track of. We're not going to get into the seven bowls until chapter 15. This is not between any seals or judgments of any kind. This is between it all. Chapter 12. In this section, the aside recapitulates and summarizes the persecution of the believers and the, at the hands of Satan after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The focus is on how Yahweh preserves the believers despite the attacks of Satan. No matter what view you take, don't get me wrong, there's always somebody out there who has an extreme exception, that kind of stuff. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the vast majority of scholars between the preterists, the futurists, and the, the idealists, and whatever I am. I have no idea what I am. Um, I mean, it's what you would label me as. Everybody believes that this is a giant summary of the death and resurrection and of the believers. They don't believe this is really past or future. It's just a summary of all those events. Well, I guess technically it's past because Christ has already come. In the spirit of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, we have the woman, the child, and the dragon. And that's what we're going into. That's what it always makes me think of. Like, this is the sequel. It's this scary sequel for when you're an adult. Then a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. And on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was screaming in labor pains. That's comforting. Struggling to give birth. That's the first sign. A woman that is pregnant with the sun and the moon and the stars at her feet. And she's about ready to give birth. The Catholics will tell you this is Mary. You're going to see how this cannot be Mary. If it is Mary, then Mary is doing a lot of things throughout time and history. Um, this is not Mary. And I, I, I have a problem with everything that the Catholics believe on Mary. Every angle, every view that they have on her, the way they interpret it. If you don't know anything about Catholic, Catholic views of Mary, the idea is God is this wrathful, vengeful. He loves you. He's not like Allah or some Zeus who's capricious and vindictive, but he, he's got wrath. He's judging the world. And, and you can't come before God because he just is going to kill you. And, um, and they wouldn't maybe do it to that extreme. It depends on the Catholic. Well, it's a, his, his son is a little nicer, and you come to him. But even he's too far removed in judgment, and so the only way you can get to the son is through his mother. And mothers are always compassionate. They're always willing to let you in and that kind of stuff. And she gives you an introduction to Jesus. 
And that's why, and of course we know that they are very far removed from them because you even have to pray through the Father. You can never pray to Jesus, you have to pray through the Father, you have to pray through Mary. That's why you do your Hail Marys and the Rosary Beads and you go to the Father. You can never go to Jesus just yourself. Even though Hebrews 4 says that we can now boldly and confidently go to the throne of God through Christ that we're in Christ, that we're the body of Christ, that remain in him. Remain. The Bible makes it very clear that you can go to Jesus and that he gives him compassion. But in the Catholic Church, the idea is that he, she's the mother of God, literally. And they believe that if Jesus is sinless, then the mother has to be sinless as well. Because how can a sinner give birth to a sinless being? Now, that logic is incredibly flawed. Because if you take that logic seriously, then that means her mom would have to be a sinless too. Because how can a and then her mom, and then her mom, and then, and then that means Eve was sinless. So the, the, the domino effect doesn't work. And so the idea is that she is even greater than Jesus, according to the Pope. Not every Catholic might, you remember a lot of Catholics don't even know what they believe. But, and I don't mean that in a slam or a bad thing. I just mean that as a fact. Uh, my heart goes out to them. But if you go into the Vatican, where the Pope is, there are two very prominent paintings. One is the School of Athens, which is... When I went to the Vatican, I was struck by how much pagan nudity temple gods were just littered throughout the entire church. That church has thousands upon thousands of naked Greek and Roman gods everywhere, and Greek god paintings everywhere. It is filled with more paganism than any satanic church that I have ever seen. You go there, and there's a school of Athens, but right above the Pope's most holy chambers, like the equivalent of the Oval Office, is a painting of the enthronement of Mary. And Mary is on the center throne higher than God and Jesus, who are slightly lower than her. And it just goes over the archway of the Pope's door. And so this tells you how they view Mary. And so the sun, the moon, stars at her feet? Of course it's Mary. In fact, that's the, you've probably seen the Madonna painting of her standing on a crescent moon and the stars coming up out of her. Or not out of her, but around her. This is not Mary. It's Israel. Now, how do you know it's Israel? Because the law of first mention. You let the Bible interpret itself. And where do we see the sun, the moon, and the stars? Joseph's vision in Genesis chapter 17. Joseph had a vision of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him as the twelfth star. And have you ever noticed that interpreting dreams must have been a family gift? Because it's actually the brothers who interpret the dream, not Joseph. They interpret the dream of the, shares, um, the wheats of grain and the stars and the moon. And so is Jacob. Joseph interprets the cupbearer and the baker and the pharaoh. But he doesn't actually interpret his own dream. Now, I don't mean that Joseph didn't know what his interpretation was, but it was the brothers who interpreted it. And it must have been a family thing. That's a little side note. I don't know. But I thought it was, that, that was interesting. Yes, it's a side thing. But Jacob and the brothers tell you very clearly that the son is Jacob, the father of Israel, and this moon is Leah, the mother of Israel, the one that God really wanted him to marry. And that the 12 stars are the sons who go on to become the father of the 12 tribes, Jacob and his sons. And it's the only time that the sun, the moon, the stars are ever mentioned together, ever, until here. And then it becomes very clear because this woman gives birth to the 
Messiah. And it's very clear as we keep reading it that this is the Messiah. Now, yes, it's Mary, but as you begin to read, it talks about other children and the woman being carried away. And, all, and it becomes very clear that this woman is far greater than just one single woman. It is Israel. And even Paul says that uses the idea of a woman who is um, us as a bride of Christ and Israel as the bride and the, the virgin daughter and all that kind of stuff. Every, the vast majority of time that you see a virgin or pregnant woman or the bride in literature like this, it refers to Israel or the body of Christ. And so this is Israel. This is Israel from the very beginning of Joseph and his father and his brothers and his mother and all the way to the end. It's the people of God. And that's the great sign. The th- second sign, verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven. A he- oh, by the way, the woman and the child are not named, unlike the dragon. That means the fact that it's unnamed and it's without... Now, there is an article here in your English, but it doesn't really have that in the Greek. The fact that it's unnamed means that it doesn't refer to a specific person. It refers to a collective, a corporate body. The dragon is specifically named, which means it's an individual. Verse 3, the second great sign. Another sign appeared in heaven, a huge red dragon who had seven heads and ten horns on its heads were the seven diadem and crowns. Now the dragon's tail swept a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was about ready to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. This dragon, or sorry, the woman was going to give birth a son, a male child, who was going to rule over all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was suddenly caught up to God and to his throne. And she fled into the wilderness, where the place had been prepared for her by God, so that she could be taken care of for 1,260 days. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Verse 9. A huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one that called the devil, and Satan who deceived the whole world. So the dragon is Satan. Now, is Satan literally a red seven-headed dragon? No. And this one clearly is metaphorical. And this is why I mentioned I, I have a hard time going between metaphorical and literal. Um, I, I just think it makes more sense to take all this metaphorical. So the dragon is red. The seven heads represent to completion all throughout the ancient world. When people wanted to artistically portray chaos and evil they drew it as a seven-headed dragon coming out of the sea their archaeology is littered with paintings and carvings and etchings of kings conquering seven-headed dragons coming out of the sea to say i have the right to be king because i can subdue the chaos we see this in the mythologies of the enemy elish of the babylonians the creation account we see this in um the Egyptian account of creation and that kind of stuff. We see this over and over again. So what God is saying is the ultimate embodiment of chaos and evil is Satan. The serpent has always been metaphorical of chaos. And what God is saying is the greatest example of what the serpent stands for is Satan. And this comes up out of the sea. The sea represents chaos. The beasts come up out of the sea. It always represents chaos. So the Satan is the power behind all the chaos in the world, and he's ready to devour the Messiah when he is given birth to. This can be metaphorically representing Herod the Great. 
as well as the many, many other times that people have tried to kill Jesus by throwing him off the cliff and all that kind of stuff. But this woman is going to give birth to a male child. But don't worry, he won't be devoured because he is going to rule over all the nations with an iron scepter. We've already talked about this. This alludes back to Numbers 24, where a star will come up out of Jacob bearing the scepter of God. And Psalm chapter 2, where he will be given an iron scepter to bash pottery. What does that mean? All the better to bash your skull in with, right? He will rule and judge. Numbers 24 literally says he will crush the skulls of his enemy. Psalm 110 literally says that God will give the enemies to the Messiah's footstool. And Psalm 2 says that he will crush pottery with his scepter. We are pottery. We are referred to as pottery in Jeremiah's vision. We are clay. We are taken out of the clay. We are the potter's wheel clay. Um, all throughout the ancient world, pottery refers to humans, clay refers to human, and the, even the mythology of Baal and the Canaanites, Moat is a god who eats clay all day long and is never satisfied, and there's always more to eat. He's talking about humans, because that's what death does, is consume us. And so the idea here is he will crush the enemies of God. So there's no fear what this dragon can do, because this child will rule. She fled into the wilderness. The wilderness can be a place of testing and trial, but it also is a place of security where God takes care of you. It's where God grows you in the faith. It's harsh, but it also protects you. We see this with the Jews when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God took care of them, bread and water. Their shoes didn't run out in any kind of way. The meat we also see with Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. In poetry and Psalms, the, God, the, the people talk about all how they long to go back to the wilderness where they can dwell with God without any distractions, that God took care of them in the wilderness, and one day they will meet God in the wilderness again. And even the one who prepares the way for the Messiah is going to come out of the wilderness. And so the wilderness is seen as a place of protection where God removes all worldly distractions so that you can be intimately connected to him. And then he tests you and grows you in your faith. And that's where she's going to be taken care of for 1,260 days, meaning it's going to be a little while, but not forever. Verse 7, then war broke out. So we're told that this dragon swept a third of the stars away. Is this referring to the fall of Satan? Don't know. Is this referring to another war? I Now, this opening up a cannon worms that I'm not going to talk about. I believe that there could have been multiple falls of the angels, um, the demons. I don't believe that there was just like one fall and it was done and over. I believe that there, as you go through scripture, and this is a much longer discussion, you can see examples where the angels have fallen at different times based on different events in history. So um, um, now that one I'm not going to argue or I'm, I'll point out what hints at it, but I'm not going to say that's definitely it. Um, there's just way too much that we do not understand about the spiritual realm for me to stand firmly on many things. But this definitely refers to some kind of angelic host following him and joining him. Is it the original fall? Is this a later one? I don't know. Verse 7. We get to the second half. So now the war, we've seen the war on earth where she's, the dragon is seeking to consume the child. Now we're taken up in heaven and seeing that the same time that there's a battle on earth for the Messiah, there's a battle in heaven for the Messiah. Because what happens on earth happens in the spiritual realm, and what happens in the spiritual realm happens on earth. They're directly linked. Not in a mirroring sense, but in a linking kind of a sense. Verse 7, the war broke out in heaven. Michael... 
The only two angels that are ever mentioned in the Bible is Gabriel and Michael. Nobody else is ever named by name. His angels fought against the dragons, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough to prevail, so there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. So that the huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before our God, has been thrown down. But they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore the heavens, you heavens rejoice, and all you reside in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you. He is filled with terrible anger, for he knows that he only has a little time. This is very clear that we're talking about a great swath of human history. The fall of the dragon and the angels and that kind of stuff. But here's what's interesting. Does this refer to the original fall of the devil and a bunch of angels at the beginning of the time that happened at one time? Or does it refer to a battle and a war that happened while Christ was dying on the cross? In a heaven is outside of time and it's really complicated, it could be both. Or it could be one or the other. But what's interesting about this is, and I'm not going to give you any definite answer because I have no definite answer. But here's an interesting observation. It says in this praise to God that the fall of the devil is directly linked to Christ's victory on the cross. There's a sense that Michael and his angels have been fighting the devil. And I don't really literally mean this, but that, that they've been somehow equally matched. And I do believe that they're equally matched. I mean, they're just, they're all angels. And I know like, yeah, but they're not because God is on Michael's side. Yes, I know. But I also have no idea what's really going on in the spiritual realm and how spiritual warfare walks, works anyways. And if God really wanted to, he could go, boom, and all spiritual warfare is gone. But he doesn't. So I don't know how to speak on it. But there's a sense where they're equally matched. But it's not until Christ dies that it says, therefore the dragon, or because there, the dragon's cast down. There's something about how the dragon has received an even greater defeat because of Christ's victory on the cross. And he has lost a considerable amount of power because of Christ's victory on the cross. And is this a battle that began with the fall that has been raging without t throughout time that now um, has a great decisive blow given to it through the cross? Probably. Probably. Um, did it begin with the fall of a bunch of angels and fighting? When we get to Daniel chapter 10, um, 9 or 10, my brain's getting confused now, 10. Daniel was praying for 21 days for an answer to a vision that he didn't understand. And all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up and he says, Look, Daniel, the minute you started praying, God sent me and I came. Angels can move faster than lightning. It should not have taken them 21 days. But he said, the prince of Greece, Persia, resisted me. Well, prince just means ruler. The actual Hebrew is ruler. The ruler of, and you were like, wait a minute. Did Cyrus III actually successfully wrestle an angel down to the ground and pin him for 21 days and he couldn't get to him? No, right? Then we're told later that, by the way, I had to get back and fight the good fight, so to speak. He said, Michael came to my aid. 
the Prince Michael came to my aid, and there you go. Okay, if Michael's an angel, we know that for a fact, and he's called a ruler of something, then this ruler of Persia is also an angelic being. And he says, Michael came in and aided me, and now I had to get back there because the Prince of Greece is coming, meaning that's the new world empire, and this demon has gained power. This is very clear spiritual warfare, and somehow Daniel's praying and fasting aided Michael and Gabriel and the fight for him to get to him and answer the prayer. And this demon saw a message coming from God and said, ah, I don't want Daniel to get that. And they started spiritual warfare. And so what we know is that there has been a battle going on in some kind of form throughout time. And now the enemy has lost a great amount of power because the ultimate son of God has now arrived and defeated them on the cross. And he's been thrown down. And now it tells you, now that he's been thrown down, he is ticked. And he's just going to unleash. It's kind of like when you're a little kid and your parents like punish you. I mean, this may not happen with all of you. And you're just so mad at them because they're so unjust in what they did. And you kind of want to lash out in anger, but you're so scared of doing anything to your parents, and rightfully so. So you like maybe kick your dog or kick the wall. That's what I did. I kicked the wall and put a hole in the wall. And another time I kicked my foot so hard that the shoe flew off and slammed into the oil lamp. That was a heart attack coming on me. So... Um, yeah, that, I did not expect my shoe to fly up like a torpedo and go across the living room and slam into that oil lamp, a very old, precious oil lamp. So I thought I was going to die um, because my mom was beating me so hard. No, I'm just kidding. So, but you, 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 so you take it out on something else. That's what we see here. He's taking it out on something else. And so in some ways, spiritual warfare is amped up on us physically post-Christ. They will hate you because they hated me first, Jesus says. Yet the spiritual warfare in heaven is far greater, more powerful on our side because of the victory of Christ. So physically, we're in somewhat more danger. But spiritually, we have no danger to fear in any kind of a way. And that seems to be the idea that is being communicated. And I mean seems um, that to be the idea. So woe to the earth. Verse 13. Now when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the giant eagle, strange mythology, so that she could fly onto the wilderness, the place of God prepared for her, so that she can be taken care of, away from the presence of the serpent for a time, times, and half a time. Um, this goes back to Daniel, the idea that time, times, and time half is three and a half years. The serpent sprout, spouted water like a river from his mouth. Now, this is clearly not Mary. Because Mary didn't flee and go off into the wilderness after she gave birth to Jesus. And stay there for three and a half years. Because the dragon was trying to attack her. But the dragon couldn't get to her. Because the dragon comes from the sea. He's a leviathan. And he's bound by the sea. And when we read the Psalms, God talks about creating the sea and the land. And then he says, and here you shall go no farther, further sea. And I rebuke you sea, and I place this land as a boundary to the sea. And you're like, well, that's really strange to talk about the sea and the land. Well, if it doesn't make sense literally, then it's figurative and metaphorical. So what he means is the land is the place where God blesses you with life, the Garden of Eden. The sea is chaos that destroys and sinks you. And so the idea is that God has put a limit on the evil and chaos and says you can only do so much to my creation. 
And so the land represents a boundary. So she flees into the wilderness so far away from the sea that the sea dragon has no hope of getting to her. So what does the dragon do to try to get to her? Opens its mouth and spews out a river to get her. Because the rivers are also portrayed as chaos in the world. Because you and I don't think much about rivers. But even way back in the Oregon Trail, I mean, not way back, my idea was that even as recently as the Oregon Trail, the river was death. Okay, when many people didn't know how to swim because they didn't swim for recreation, they were too busy trying to survive on the farm to learn how to swim. And in the river, you didn't have giant bridges and wagons and horses could only handle so much. When those rivers come barreling down, it's death. It's absolute death. And so the river is chaos as well. And you see this even in Lord of the Rings, where the elven um, says that chant to stop the river because it's threatening to kill them. We see the river threatening to kill them in the Jordan River, okay? And he has to part it. And so the idea is that the dragon can't get to him, but there's still a way to get to you in your security. He spews a river, meaning I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to use other things to get chaos into your life. And the river mouth after the woman to attempt to sweep her away by a flood. But the earth came to her rescue, and the ground opened up and swallowed the river, and the dragon had spewed from his mouth. This is an illusion. The winged woman goes back to Israel in Zechariah's vision. And Zechariah's vision he has a vision of Israel, two winged women grabbing Israel in a basket and flying off with her and taking her into exile. Now the woman's growing wings, and wings often represent, um, humans are often given wings and to give them supernatural power in Greek mythology and that kind of stuff. And, and then now it's spewed a river mouth, and the ground opens up to swallow it. We saw that in, in Numbers, where God judges the priests by opening the ground and swallowing them down as a judgment for their sin. So God protected Israel from these rebellious people by allowing the ground to swallow them. Now God is protecting the people of God by allowing the ground to swallow the river. So the dragon became enraged at the woman and went away to make war on the rest of her children. Once again, this isn't Mary. Does that mean Satan's like, I can't get Jesus and I can't get Mary? Now I'm going after you, Jude and James? Okay, no, that doesn't mean. What it means is the other children of God are us, the Gentiles who come to God by faith. A way to make war on the rest of her children, those who are kept by God's commandments and hold to the testimony about Jesus. The other children are specifically the people who hold to Jesus and obey his commandments. The believers in the new covenant. It's the Gentile Jewish church. So the first child is Jesus, ultimate Israel. And the children after that are the believers of Christ. And the dragon stood in the sand of the seashore, ready for her to come back. That's the implication. But it says those who obey the commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it would only be the Jews who have accepted Christ and the Gentiles accept Christ. So yes, it, the Jews who have accepted Christ and the Gentiles have accepted Christ. So the rest of her offspring are the b- b- believing Jews and the rest of her children are the believing Gentiles. And that would be the idea. Everybody believes that this is just a summary of the spiritual conflict around Jesus' birth and ascension into heaven. And so this is obviously a synopsis. And what it's doing, why is this here? You're like, okay, we're in this story. God is giving you an insight to the fact that the entire time that Jesus was born, yes, Herod was attacking him. 
Yes, the Pharisees tried to throw him off the cliff. Yes, the Jews and the Romans are the ones who crucified him. But what God is telling you is that ultimately the power behind them was Satan. And despite all those supposedly seemingly world victories, behind the scenes there was spiritual warfare and God kept protecting them. Yes, they got attacked and yes, they got trampled a little bit, but ultimately nobody was able to thwart the word of God. Jesus was ultimately killed. Sorry, Jesus killed, but ultimately he was resurrected and ascended. Ultimately, the believers keep growing and multiplying in the book of Acts. Ultimately, the church has multiplied far greater than any time in world history through all these times. And what God is trying to remind you, as you're reading about these horrible things that are happening in the tribulation period, whether we're in it now, metaphorically, literally we're in it now, but metaphorically these things refer to the now, or it's future one day, don't worry. No matter how hellish and how hopeless you think it gets, in the background in the scenes, God is still in control, and he's preserving you and protecting you. And every time Satan does something, he swallows them up or swallows the river or carries you off into protection in the wilderness, all these things, because do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy the soul and the body. And that's the idea. Satan may be able to get you physically, but he cannot get you spiritually. And this is a reminder that if God did this for Israel, and then Israel's Messiah, Jesus, and we've already seen him continue to do it for the believers of the church, then he will do it for us as well. He will do it for us as well. Ultimately, chapter 12 is saying this. It is by holding fast to the testimony of Jesus that the Christians protect themselves from the rage and the lies of Satan. We overcome not because we are always victorious, but because we persevere in Jesus' name. Notice it says that he carried the other children away and protected them, those who held to the commands of Jesus. It does not mean that obedience is what saves you. It means that perseverance is what shows that you truly belong to God. Those who persevere. Just like the lamb died, so we may as well. But just like the lamb was victorious, we will be victorious. We are not victorious because we conquer the world. We are victorious because we cling to the testimony of Jesus. That is what makes us victorious.